Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and we have an exciting episode for you this week. But before we start, we need to spend a few minutes in Dr. Art Carden's economic imagination. Hello, I'm Art Carden from Sanford University's Brock School of Business. Have you ever wondered about the theological meaning of economics and the theological meaning of environmentalism? One economist did. Unfortunately, he passed away at the end of 2018. But in a little bit, we're going to discuss some of his contributions. Thank you for joining us today. We are here to talk about misrepresentations of libertarianism with a familiar voice on our podcast, Dr. Jamin Andreas Hubner. Jamin is a scholar, musician, and entrepreneur from South Dakota. He has three graduate degrees, two in religion and philosophy, and another in economics, and has taught as an associate professor and served as academic dean in higher education. Jamin, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. So I wanted to talk with you about uh, an article that you wrote back in December, which rapidly got a lot of traction on our website, libertarianchristians.com, the religious problem with the religious problem of libertarianism. It's a very clever, easy, easy to go with title there, Uh, because I want to talk with you about this because it seems like that most non-libertarians, at least in popular writings and sometimes even in academic writings, seem to have their own perceptions about what libertarians believe or about what kind of people libertarians are or what kind of politics we we all represent. Uh, And they just kind of go from their perceptions. Uh, And I I think this is kind of dangerous because they're kind of misrepresenting you know, they're misrepresenting, you know, a viewpoint that has been kind of thoroughly thought out in a lot of ways. You know, there's always going to be some bad eggs and some poor representations of libertarians out there. I mean, I've probably argued very poor libertarian defenses, you know, on Facebook or, or somewhere, you know, on blogs and so forth, uh, like blog comments and stuff in my, you know, journey to becoming a more consistent libertarian. There, there's just so much misinformation out there. And I feel like you're one of the better people to talk to about, you know, how do we confront this? What are some of the types of mis- misunderstanding? Why does this even exist? Like, why can't somebody like Al Mohler do do some due diligence and kind of learn a little bit about what what we actually believe uh, mm-hmm. when you debate somebody like Norman? Because it didn't seem like he actually understood, you know, our position at all. Uh, and we're not here to talk about Al Mohler, but that's just the, the most prominent example that comes to mind. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, it's a pretty wide constellation of topics. And um, I think, first of all, we should just uh, be reminded that, I mean, everybody's misrepresented or misunderstood at some point in their lives and possibly for all their lives. Um, and that can apply to a person's opinions or their their way of life or whatever. And all the more true for groups, you know, uh Marxists, I'm sure, are misrepresented. Uh, feminists, uh, Muslims, Christians, um, you know, conservatives, liberals. Everybody faces communicative barriers. You know, we have images in our mind. We've sort of been pre-programmed to think about some people and some words and some ideas in certain ways. And uh, you know, sadly, it's just a, a dysfunction of 
of language a lot of the time and or our misunderstanding of how language works. And obviously there are disagreements that are genuine as well. But so I think we can, you know, just start from the that that broader realization that all of us just as human beings are throughout the week, throughout our years and life on this planet, trying to, you know, get a handle on what what is out there and what people are really saying. So nevertheless, there are, you know, unique obstacles that different communities have. Uh, Christians are misunderstood. Libertarians are misunderstood in certain ways. And when you put them together, you have kind of all of those uh, issues multiplied and then things that are unique to people who identify as, as Christian libertarians or whatever. We can look at it in that way, too, and kind of broadly categorize the fields and semantic domains of misunderstanding through you know, the, the libertarian economic side of things, the Christian religious theological side of things, and then uh, what is uniquely, uh, you know, concerning when when these are sort of brought together. And of course, in my, in my mindset and, and probably others listening, it's not really something that is, is so separate anyway. It's, hmm. it's really, um, um, I mean, to me, to be a Christian uh, is to be nonviolent, it's to be uh, critical of empires, it's to be loving, it's to seek peace. Well, that's, that. in other words, it means to be libertarian. Yeah. So... I guess that's the way I see it, but yeah. So, but you're saying to parse it out a bit, it might be to say like there's classic stereotypes and misunderstandings of Christians, and then there's stereotypes and misunderstandings of libertarians, and you know, helping parsing that out a little bit might help understand why Christian libertarians, especially, are being being misunderstood. Yeah. So, you know, for example, um, like Christians today, or at least like in the Western world, in the 20th, 21st century, in that general arena, that might mean, okay, I am a Christian. Well, people might hear that as, okay, you're sort of a judgmental person, or maybe you're anti-intellectual, you know, and believe uh, whatever the earth is 6,000 years old or whatever issue is considered anti-intellectual. Um you know, you're a dogged fan of the Republican Party and never vote for anybody else, especially in recent times. That's sort of what it means to be Christian, sort of. So you have those specific issues. Libertarianism, as you know, that could lead to different stereotypes and, and problems like, OK, well, this is an extreme ideology. Uh, they don't win elections and they're therefore irrelevant. Another would be, OK, libertarians, well, they promote selfishness and isolationism at the expense of community values or, you know, they support these contemporary failures of capitalism and all these international corporations using the government to force people to buy their stuff or whatever. So there's, there's so many issues you can see then uh, when you put them together and what we've seen in contemporary discourse like from Moeller and other prominent uh, evangelicals when they talk about this are things like, well, Christian libertarians, well, they promote disorder. You know, they're, they all this talk about the problem with government and uh, the problems with uh, empire building and so forth. This is just going to lead to anarchy, and that's, a, that's obviously a problem. Uh, they might even inadvertently promote atheism. That's a regular charge uh, that we sort of hear, but, well, from 
that, that's kind of unique to Mueller, unfortunately. You don't hear that very much except from a couple. That's a strange argument to me because, like, inadvertently promote atheism could be almost anybody. I mean, Christians, <laughs> Christians well, themselves advocating for a certain type of Christianity could be doing such a thing. It's just well, really it, kind of ironic to me. Yeah, well, and, and it betrays uh, sort of that particular religious wing's problem with acknowledging truth in places that aren't Christian. You know what I mean? Like supposedly we all believe God's truth is, you know, all truth is God's truth. Right. Um, and so it shouldn't be a big deal, you know, to read uh, whether a Rand or Rothbard or whatever and say, oh, they have good ideas. But then that's just ironically used against Christian libertarians. So, um, hmm. yeah, another thing is, uh, supposedly Christian libertarians compromise biblical ideas on morality. You know, how can you possibly defend, um, you know, women's right rights to, um, to be prostitutes or to, for people to smoke marijuana or whatever issues are considered, uh, morally problematic, simply protecting people's rights to do things is viewed as supporting the things that people do with their freedom. You think that people would kind of be smarter than that? Like, do they really think that we're proposing that? Like, I don't know. It just seems that I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe I'm doing it too much, but I just assume most people realize that legality and morality aren't always the same thing Mm -hmm. because people's, people's attitudes over time change and people, I mean, I I grew up in a household where there was no alcohol. Alcohol was looked at as not not good, like you avoid it. It was a Christian household. And, you know, now I'm an adult. Obviously, my parents are much older. My dad and I will share a beer over pizza now. Like, changing changing attitudes aren't because, like, I don't know. I could just think of, like, a cultural shift. I know that's not about legality or more, legality per se, but, like, just the, the idea of a cultural shift and people kind of having this view that, like, things can change. And so with these cultural changes, I don't know. I just don't understand why. Maybe there's, maybe that's just a kind of a weird flow of thought, but like, I don't know why people think legality and morality tend to go hand in hand. Like, come on, give us the benefit of the doubt. Just, you really think we're think we think it's like Christian. Well, I'm a Christian. You really think I'm okay with prostitution or can you separate the legality from the morality? I just don't understand why people don't do that more, more readily. Yeah. Well, I think uh, in conversations, and especially when we're in an apologetic mode, when we're we're trying to stand up for our own position, we uh, tend not to consistently apply things that we know are the case, like that distinction you mentioned. Most people would acknowledge there's a difference between legality and morality. Um, but when it's it's convenient for your argument to ignore that, that's often what happens. So, yeah, it, it's uh, it's it's difficult. When, you know, the, the context of these discussions are public forums and uh, radio shows and other things, it's, it's not, you know, a few blog comments or something, but uh, people in prominent positions, they have thousands and thousands and thousands of listeners who will believe generally what people say because they trust that person. And so, you know, like I don't like writing articles, blog posts, like the one I did on Dr. Ashford. But, uh, when you're in a position of power, you have an audience and, um, 
there's all these other claims that are, are, are there. There's all kinds of presuppositions that are there. There's a, there's a certain responsibility that a person needs to undertake uh, to ensure that what they're talking about is at least somewhat, you know, well uh, defined and and researched and so forth. And so, you know, a lot of times we could we mostly just ignore a lot of that some of the time, and 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 we we do that. There's just no sense in trying to respond to everything, right? But sometimes we got to be reminded, at least for the audiences that maybe are trying to sort these things out, that there's another story, right? And there's another way of looking at things. And this isn't simply the way things are. And uh, we shouldn't be scared about these uh, libertarians who are plotting to take over the world and leave you alone. <laughs> right, <laughs> as yes. The, as the good meme says. <laughs> as the good meme says, that's great. So, you know, the, one of the thoughts that I've had when I debate people on Facebook, and, and it's not like I'm formally debating them, but when I get into these arguments about, you know, who believes what, and when people attribute beliefs to other people. So for instance, Ashford attributed beliefs to to libertarians about the world, about our theology, about, you know, like just general presumptions about how the world works, things like that. When you make an attribution to somebody, you tell them, "Well, you must believe this or you must believe that." Is there room for telling that person that they believe something but that person doesn't quite realize it yet? Um, you know, and and it brings to mind the the sort of, oh, well, they don't understand what libertarianism is, or they don't understand what democratic socialism is, insert anything. And you have somebody refuting an argument against something, you know, and then a defender of that, that ideology or political position or whatever says, oh, well, they're just misrepresenting. They don't really know what we believe. Like there is a sense in which some arguments appear to be that way, you know, on the internet. How do you how do you suggest we like, get beyond that? And like, I mean, obviously one of them is to just like literally spell it all out. But what what are your thoughts on yeah. that, on that phenomenon? Well, that's a, that's a really complicated question because it involves uh, judgments about people's motivations. And that's always dangerous work. Mm. That's always risky work. Uh, when we go about assuming that people are saying things or doing things um, for certain reasons. And, you know, we, we all have certain tendencies and, and in some positions we can be in a informed position where we sort of know where things are going to go and where a person's journey is. And especially if we compare it with our own and it's similar, you know, you know, we say, well, I, I remember when I was thinking that way, you know, or I remember when I was voting that way or whatever. And, um, yeah, I mean, and libertarians and do the same thing. <laughs> you know, it's like, what's the difference between, uh, you know, a, a minarchist and an anarcho-capitalist six months or three months or something <laughs> like that. Right. So that the assertion there, of course, is that, well, you know, you'll understand and you'll get it. And, and I just mentioned that because, well, first of all, I mean, that's, I, I make those type of, of judgments too, and, and they work in my favor. And so there's no doubt that other people, uh, might be able to make the same type of uh, judgment and they may end up being right. But the whole thing is pretty hazardous. And that's, I think, the important thing to underscore. The other thing to note, I think, in the way that you frame this and talked about it in the context of like Facebook discussions and so forth, is that we, we have to be careful about knowledge claims uh, in general and what it is we're doing when we're trying to pin down people's 
beliefs. And we have to ask, you know, what to what end are we doing this? Is it really for understanding or is it to really put people and different ideas in a comfortable distance away from us so that we don't have to deal with it? You know what I mean? So that's that's kind of a whole nother dimension because, you know, our beliefs are very close to us and you know, there are good reasons why people say when you go to Thanksgiving dinner or whatever, you don't talk about politics, religion, and money. Those are the things that you just don't talk about because they're so personal to a person. Yeah. But so, yeah, I mean, we have to develop the, the sensitive sensitivities that are appropriate and make it clear why we're, we make the types of probing questions we do, the types of knowledge claims we do. And so the ethos doesn't become sort of hegemonic and domineering so that, you know, you know, there's a problem when you're always saying, well, I, I just know what you think. You know what I mean? It's like, well, right. no, you know, the language is, uh, I was just writing in an article today, uh, about language and metaphor and how, you know, words don't define anything. They don't define meaning what they do is they try to capture meaning. And so words are, are, are they're, they're loose approximations. They're underdetermined. It's kind of like the tip of an iceberg. And so what we're dealing with the people, and especially this is important when we're just typing words on a computer, is people are trying to get their meaning onto a page. And then we're trying to understand it from that medium into our minds and, 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 and figure that out. So... We just have to remember that uh, language is is always uh, inadequate, and that often we may, might have more in common uh, with people we disagree with than uh, we realize. And I think that's especially true with economics. Um, we all want to see poor people get enough to eat and improve their living conditions, right? Uh, so. If you're um, unless you're a wealthy capitalist. No, that's all they care about is themselves, Jamin. Don't you know uh, yeah. this? It's just a fundamental principle of the universe. Right. The rich people are only about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, you know, there you go. So <laughs> there's my conversation ender. <laughs> yeah. So we have Christians, you know, have have the, you know, the stereotype and mis misunderstandings and libertarians. And how, how does being a Christian libertarian kind of put us into both? <laughs> Both traps, if you will. Well, I, I mean, it's not very difficult. How? I mean, it's it's just these these two different domains and 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 conceptual maps are just overlaid with one another. Uh, and if you read my article in the Christian Libertarian Review, Volume One, uh, the first article there, I sort of outline what those four, in in my case, four different overlapping themes. And I can't remember exactly what they are right now, but yeah, it's 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 not too complicated. And you know, that's a good point of discussion too. I think is that these are these are not just things that were we kind of attach to each other, append to one another in a conglomeration, uh, as if uh, our our understanding of things is just a hodgepodge uh, collection of random ideas. Like I had said earlier. Uh, I'm a libertarian because I'm a Christian. I don't, I don't see any other expression of political thought that would make sense of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the, the New Testament story and the New Covenant, etc. So one sort of flows from the other. 
Now, that doesn't mean we're all going to come to the same conclusions. And there's a lot of different ways of expressing that, too. But, yeah, as far as what the unique criticisms are, I'm, I'm not sure that's really necessary to elaborate on as much as how libertarians that are Christian are viewed as threatening today to Christians. Okay, so that's yeah. that's a little bit different discussion because – and that's important to have because I think that's the primary reason why we have all these mischaracterizations of libertarian Christians is because it's viewed as sort of a, a fringe sect that's uprooting, you know, tried and true models of political ideology. And that's a threat to God's kingdom because, well, et cetera, et cetera. Hi, it's me again, Art Carden from Sanford University's Brock School of Business. Earlier, I asked about the theological meaning of economics. This was a topic that was explored by Robert Nelson, who unfortunately passed away in December. But Dr. Nelson wrote several books on the theological meaning of economics or the theological interpretations of economics. And in particular, in a 2010 book published by Penn State University Press and the Independent Institute called The New Holy Wars, Economic Religion versus Environmental Religion in Contemporary America, Dr. Nelson took a theological lens to questions related to economic growth and development and questions related to environmental issues, questions related to things like recycling, environmental stewardship, and so on. He argued that one of the better ways to see these issues is not in terms of the methods of social science per se, but in terms of competing theologies or competing studies of and standards for ordering principles for the universe. Dr. Nelson was a great scholar and a great person, and he made a lasting contribution to our understanding of the intersection between economics and theology. He'll be missed. To get more practice with the economic imagination, visit libertarianchristians.com slash artcarden. And now, back to the episode. Yeah, well, no, I get the thought. I mean, I've, I've actually written a little bit about the social phenomenon of, you know, evangelicals and, you know, because that's just kind of the, that I grew up evangelical, etc., and, you know, evangelicals are growing millennials that kind of grew up in the church. They're finding themselves disenfranchised from both the left and the right. Libertarianism is a popular or at least attractive option for political thought for for Christians who, you know, for all intents and purposes, grew up kind of in a bubble of of conservative, everything has to go into this framework kind of kind of way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. I'm not throwing anybody under the bus or anything like that. Just libertarianism is attractive as an option, and so somehow poses a threat to the prevailing winds um, of evangelical thought, at least according to the people who would like to be those gatekeepers. I'm mixing metaphors all over, but I think people can follow what I'm trying to go with here. Yeah, well, I, I think I think you're generally right. And, um, and mixing metaphors is great, by the way. Oh, good. So. <laughs> yeah, you could probably elaborate better than I could summarize. So go go on. <laughs> well, it's we're, we're we're all in a particular situation of our time and culture, and we're in the 21st century. Most of the people listening are probably going to be in the English speaking world. Well, they're going to have to be to understand what we're saying. Probably in the Western world, in Europe or America, and so. We have a lot in life. We have to deal with things that people didn't have to deal with 500 years ago and that people won't deal with 500 years from now. And so we have to figure out kind of what those are and, you know, what is the best way of addressing these issues in a way that's Christ-like and edifying to, uh, to, to all parties involved. And the tough thing about dealing with conservative 
political ideology and conservative theology is is the same, is that conservatives tend to conserve. And what that means is that they naturally are suspicious of change. Now, that can be good or that can be bad. Um, change can be good or change can be bad. But what is definitely clear is that change always happens. This world never stops changing and everything changes. Our language, our understanding of the world, our our economic situation, our family life, um, the Earth's orbit is never the same, you know, from a, that it was last year. Everything is constantly on the move. And so that's what living is about, is living in this organism we call life and doing the best with what we're given and trusting God and in, in looking for guidance. And that might require innovative answers. And so that's, I think, the hardest thing, not just for political conservatives, but also those who would identify as on the left or liberal or whatever, is that what that might imply is that at some point, uh, the regular trust we've had in the political system may no longer be legitimate. And maybe there are going to be alternative models of, of, of governance, possibly entirely, that are on the horizon. And of course, there's evidence that that is already the case. So, you know, we, we ought to at least be open to the, that possibility, you know. And so libertarians, I mean, we don't, we don't have to restrict ourselves to certain terminology. Uh, libertarianism, you know, it, it's like uh, there are a lot of people who, as you said, are discontent with contemporary political discourse and don't identify with the traditional parties or, um, or frameworks. And so they, you know, they're not sure what to do. And as you said, they see things like libertarianism or things approximating it uh, as attractive. And uh, so when we're, in terms of the, the broader uh, topic of this podcast, when we're having conversations, we're having dialogue with friends and people who are in that middle or uncertain space, I just think it's important that we, labels can help, but they can also not help. And I think it's more important that people get into the world of Jesus of Nazareth and they come out changed. And I think if they really do that, if they really do uh, experience what was going on in early Christianity, they're going to come out and they're going to have serious reservations about uh, just doing whatever Caesar says. And they're going to have serious reservations about an ends justifies the means philosophy, where we can just enact coercion through various means. And that's just OK. You know what I mean? So I don't know if that helps sort of address, I'm, I'm painting in different strokes in different directions here. So, um, if that sort of addresses one of your, your concerns, but it's at least what I, well, your thoughts were a whole lot more coherent than mine. Mine was a lot more random. <laughs> so that's fine. Maybe I, I'm sure when I listen to this, I won't understand what I said. But. I, I've, oh man, that's like a lot of, I, I do that uh, enough, enough to make me feel a little embarrassed about about it, <laughs> listening to previous episodes, because I'm on here a lot. So, yeah, you got to say what you got to say. Uh, do you, do you want to talk a little bit about the article? 
Oh, we can. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know if our listeners. Some, I'm sure we have listeners who don't regularly read all the all of the articles and stuff. I mean, if you're on our mailing list, uh, if you're if you visit our blog libertarianchristians.com and read our blog, if you are on our Facebook group or follow us on a page. I mean, I hope this article has come has has come across your your eyes and that you've had time to read it. But I mean, give give our listeners a taste of of what what they're missing or what they need to go back and read. Okay, well, um, at the risk of, you know, giving more energy to something that may not deserve it, but uh, (laughs) Dr. Ashford, a uh, provost at Southern Baptist Seminary, wrote an entire article on what's wrong with libertarianism, and he's addressing a Christian audience, and uh, he includes – some interesting information and um, does not uh, really do a very good job from any account, as far as I can tell, representing what he's talking about. And uh, sadly, this isn't really abnormal if from, from, and that's what I addressed in the first part of the article is what, from what world, from what context does an article or an essay like this emerge, right? It doesn't just come out of nowhere. There is a certain agenda, and I don't want to sound too uh, postmodern literary critic-ish, uh, but you know we have to be frank about uh, why certain things are written, and sometimes the motivations are there in front of our face, and because there is a track record, a history of uh, certain critiques of Christian libertarianisms, uh, libertarianism by Southern Baptist folk and leaders, uh, we can we can piece this together and it's, it's a continuous narrative. It's, it's, it's something that's just kind of going on and on. Right. You're not just speculating. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I haven't read that or my reply in a while. So I, I don't remember all the details I do. I I write a lot. Um, but, um, well, I think you started off, this, this, it caught me. You started off with, with brilliantly and you said, you don't really understand why it seems like Southern Baptist folk are threatened by the prospect of libertarianism. And the, the by the, using the word threatened, it's like, hmm, that to me indicates that there's something like whatever is part of that narrative and, and context of like why he felt he had to write this article. Uh, there's this growing presence that libertarianism is threatening, whatever it is he thinks it, you know, his his Christian political way of looking. At yeah, things. well, it, it, at the risk of oversimplifying. And, and I don't want to alienate my Southern Baptist friends by any means. Um, and there, I, I have a, a lot of different friends who are different ministers of different denominations. And, um, I have nothing personally against Southern Baptist pastors or anything like that. Uh, I will confess up front though, I, I am in no way supporting of the, of the Southern Baptist convention as far as an institution goes and what it stands for. Uh, I could rant and rave about it all day long, and I, I don't see uh, any serious problem with its decline in the last 10, 20 years. Um, you know, I think deadwood in the forest needs to be needs to, needs to be allowed to burn so that the forest can survive. And there are many denominations that need to die, and 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 so on. So that's sort of where I come from. And and I'm I'm oversensitive to this a little bit because I was laid off by a Southern Baptist pastor and president who is extremely loyal to the Southern Baptist convention. And, um, so 
what, what, what that mentality often entails, and this is not characteristic, again, of, of all Southern Baptist pastors, and it's a domination I'm familiar with on a lot of different levels, so I'm not speaking from ignorance, but is that basically if the denomination does well, then God's kingdom is doing well. If the denomination, and this is not true of just the Southern Baptist Convention, it's true of denominationalism, right? It's this idea that, okay, we have a monopoly on theological truth. This is the pathway to the kingdom. We're the best, rah, 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 blah, blah, blah. If this denomination succeeds, the kingdom of God succeeds. If this denomination is doing poorly, then God's kingdom is doing poorly. That's the same mentality that you have also in the political arena. If the Republican, neoconservative, Christian right party constituency is doing well, then Christianity is doing well. And if Christianity is going to do well, then the Republican right-wing party also has to do well. So you see how these equivocations are made. You see in this framework how things function and they relate to one another. And that's what I sort of sketch out in the early part of the article. Uh, there, in, as far as Dr. Ashford and, and Moeller and others are concerned, uh, there is no hopeful future for Christianity if their denomination is, is doing very poorly, as far as I can tell, because that's the way it's, it's generally presented, right? Okay. Let, let me play. Yeah, no, it makes, te- it makes sense. And I, I, I think I would tend to agree with you, at least in the, whatever you could call it, the body language and sort of general tone that you hear from, you know, an attitude you hear from, you know, kind of the leadership, but I would venture to say that if you and me and the and the Ashfords and Molers of the world were, well, shoot, I guess we're probably not sitting at a bar having drinks together with them. But if we were hanging out, having coffee with them, they would tell you <laughs> that you're misrepresenting them, by, that they, of course, believe that their denomination isn't the only thing that's indicative of the kingdom of God surviving. That's perfectly possible. And, oh, and I, I'm I'm almost certain they would tell you you're misrepresenting them. Right. And I, and I would say that's perfectly possible. And. And I would hope that's not the case. But uh, in the spirit of Jesus of Nazareth and the New Testament and all of that, actions speak louder than words. And um, so then we sort of get back to that question you had earlier about, well, how do you know what people believe? You know, you say this, but here's what you really mean. Well, as uh, the verse goes, you'll know them by their fruits. And you can talk something you can say things, you can present your beliefs on a piece of paper, and you can say certain things, but but when your behavior consistently betrays that, well, that's what you believe. And actually, there's a really good study of the term belief in uh, uh, Kaufman's um, uh, In Face of Mystery and in another book, I can't remember which one, um, how the old understanding of belief was just that when you, you know, like a credo in Latin, like I believe that was simply saying, this is the way I live. Right. It's not just like, well, here's my propositional mental content written on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not what it means. So it's like, okay, you you know, if you say that these things are not important, if you say that, say, for example, um, you know, you don't, absolutely have to vote for Trump. You know, you don't have to support this party. Um, you know, okay, well, let's look at what happens when people say that, you know, because that's, 
I think that's one of the big issues with libertarians is it's stealing votes, right? Mm -hmm. That always comes to people's mind is that, well, at the end of the day, what are you saying we should do when elections come around? And any sign of ambiguity is viewed as a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you're just asking questions that cause people to think in a different way, like, mm, maybe I'm going to vote for somebody else. Maybe I'm going to stay home. Maybe I'll only do half the ballot. This scares the pants off of those who for decades and decades and decades have been raised to believe and to live a life that says, it is your absolute duty before God to go into that booth and vote a certain way, right? I have a, um, you know, a relative who is a one-issue voter, will never, ever, ever vote for someone who is in a different perspective on that issue. And uh, that's explicit there, right? And so what's unexplicit for others is that anything that threatens a certain party, that's viewed as a problem ipso facto. And so that's that's what I think, that's why I start out the article by saying, why does this particular constituency in the Southern Baptist feel so threatened by libertarians that they have to go out of their way to write really poor articles misrepresenting them um, and that doesn't carry the conversation forward? Well, Again, it's because of the mindset I just described to you. I th I think, and you know, there could be other reasons. And the good thing is, is that if we can keep the discussion civil and have a dialogue, we can learn. We don't have to, as I said in the article, we don't have to imagine what it is that we un we think is is the case or what we should do, what we believe. Uh, libertarians don't exist in zoos. You can talk to them, right? <laughs> we don't have to imagine and do a Google search and like, oh, libertarian, you know, what do they think? You know, oh, it sounds kind of weird. You know, they say that they support this and they're, oh, you know, and they get, it's just like this really haphazard. Yeah, well, and not only that, it's not as if there isn't a website that explains, you know, what Christian libertarians believe, which I realize isn't representative of every single lip every individual Christian libertarian, but like libertarianchristians.com has done a pretty darn good job over the past 10 years, fleshing a lot of this out. Like it's not even like he had to do the work of going to a whole bunch of secular libertarian sites and then going and reading some, you know, scattered right. random Christian political sites. He, <laughs> when you're in a position of authority and dominance and part of the consensus, you don't have to do that. Right. You just it's kind of like when a corporation gets market dominance, mm -hmm. they get lazy. And then another company that wasn't threatening to them gets larger and it threatens their existence and maybe overcomes them. You see this with the rising of empires too. look at uh, Assyria and Babylon. Assyria conquered the um, northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BCE and uh, Babylon was just a vassal state. No big deal. They were under the authority of the Assyrian Empire. Well, Babylon grew, it got more powerful, and they became the domineering force of the ancient Near East. And so it's the same with uh, political ideologies and, 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 and denominations and other things. When, when certain concentrations of power reach a certain size, uh, they no longer have to do what they used to do, and they can get away with sort of a, a really reckless critique, you know what I mean? That, that, that has possibly no substance at all, or is just fairly, uh, very, uh, misrepresentative. And, and that's, uh, the other thing too is, is it's like, well, who's, who's going to read my article? You know, it's like, well, this audience is probably going to be small anyway. 
right? So what are the chances that a lot of Southern Baptist people are going to hear this? Well, that's something that's, I think, underestimated in this case. I received a lot of emails from different people and uh, who are like, hey, dude, I'm Southern Baptist and Libertarian. I, we got Southern Baptists uh, contributing to our journal in, the, in, in Christian Libertarian Volume 2 coming out in the next few months. And uh, so on that front, yeah, it actually there is a shift that's happening. Like you said, there's that yeah. those people who are discontent and it's starting to make a big deal. And that, I think, is is one of the precipitating factors for this, this type of criticism. Yeah. Well, I mean, Hey, you wrote it in December and it, and it made it into the top 10 articles on libertarianchristians.com of 2018. So that's, <laughs> it got some traction very fast. So that's good. We, we've talked a lot about, you know, the misrepresentations here, you know, both because we're Christians and because we're libertarians. I mean, how do we, how do we move forward? I mean, what are some, <laughs> do you have any practical thoughts on how, how do our listeners move forward? Cause I mean, we're all going to be engaged in conversations with people and, you know, we want to avoid misrepresenting as well, but also like, you know, how do we engage in conversation? Well, this is going to sound kind of strange to some, but what, what I've learned and what a lot of rhetoricians and other people and in, in public intellectuals have have found out is when we're having intense discussion with people with whom we disagree strangely one of the best strategies to have is to ensure that the people you're talking with you continually give the microphone to them uh, and this this is for a lot of reasons and what I mean by that, is that, say, for example, I'm having a conversation with a friend, uh, you know, over over coffee, and you know, they're just they're pretty flustered. They're just like, gosh, these libertarians are just so dumb. Kind of like Ben Shapiro and uh, Ann Coulter, who, who are often have said libertarians are just stupid. They just can't get it together. What's their problem? Um, our, our initial instinct is to get really defensive, to provide all these reasons, this whole logic, and then we're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. What we could do instead, if we're having that type of conversation with that type of person, is say, okay, just just very uh, you know politely ask questions about how to actually expand on that. Like, like don't respond to it. Elaborate. Give more room to that type of misrepresentation. Make it so so huge and let it grow and balloon so that it's so obvious that, well, then they begin to realize, wow, what I just said is that basically anyone who believes this stuff are morons. And then it's like, well, but wait a minute, you're, you're not a moron. You know what I mean? Like people realize that, okay, I'm, I'm starting to sound a little bit triumphant here, a little bit carried away. And then that finally opens the door for us to clarify things a little bit. And, and it could be a reasoned discussion. It depends on who you're talking with. But I think we often have to point the direction not just to books and articles, but to people's behavior. It's like, okay, if, I mean, you think, you know, libertarians who are Christian are just, are so terrible and disruptive and et cetera, et cetera. It's like, well, how do, how do I live my life? I'm assuming you have uh, embodied some of these things. It's not just canned beliefs, you know, in your mind, uh, you know, how did you, uh, live this week? 
in light of what you say or in the last year. Or you could point to good examples like Ron Paul. You know, like, really? Is he just, okay, he's, he's a physician? Is he really that dumb? You know, he's uh, the way he talks is pretty civil. Um, you know, a lot of his ideas have been has been vindicated about wars and the Fed and et cetera. So all that is to say is it seems very unnatural. It's very difficult to do. But in conversations where I know someone has a real beef with me, uh, the best thing you can do is to hand them a knife, you know, to cut the beef, as it were, and not uh, sort of retreat and get defensive and and whatever, because that ensures that they they know that you're listening and that you care about what they believe, and you got to have that kind of trust in the first place. Um, now, I, I'm really tempted uh, also to just respond to all these things, you know, but. As you mentioned, and as it's already been clear, there is there's there isn't more than enough writing and podcasting and material. That's that's really not been the issue, right? The issue is not the lack of material. It's just uh, a spirit of genuine dialogue and and learning from each other. And uh, I wish I knew better strategies of how to encourage others into. Um, you know, treating my views more fairly. And it's, it's hard doing that. It's, but, uh, you know, it may require that we have to revisit things. You know, I changed my views on a lot of things because I read books that are forbidden and that I thought were stupid and blah, 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 blah. And now I've come to realize it's not so ridiculous after all. And so, um, you know, we have to, we have to see ourselves as, as part of a mutual conversation and that we're all trying to figure out each other a bit and to refuse to participate in the tribalistic uh, wars that draw lines in the sands prematurely and we play this game that you see so frequently on media and YouTube channels uh, of, of one-upmanship and performances uh, that get lots of clicks and it's entertainment, but at the end of the day, that's all it is. It's clicks and entertainment. And so if you're in the entertainment industry, you know, knock yourself out. But uh, most of us aren't talking about these things for that reason. At least I hope we're not. So I don't know if that really helps things going forward so much. If we expect others to understand our views and to do the best they can not to misrepresent us, we have to show that we're doing the same. There's just no way around that. And that requires humility and an active effort, you know, of showing that, okay, we've, um, we're willing to, to discuss and to read books, <laughs> you know, and, and do what's necessary, mm -hmm. you know, for a level playing field, you know, hopefully others will do the same. And, and that expectation isn't so unreasonable. We don't have to be angry about it. It's easy to get angry about it. You know, like when I was writing that article, it's like, I want to get pretty angry about this. Like, how, how could, <laughs> you know, it's like you want to define libertarianism according to the conservative encyclopedia. It's like, okay, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Why would anybody do that? It brings discredit upon yourself yeah. and, and shows what you're doing. You know, I've been in positions like that too, and I know what it's like. And I'm not going to drag that on and get, let my blood pressure rise, you know, as, to the best I can. So... But yeah, a lot of it's about behavior and setting example 
And, uh, you know, libertarianism has, has never, as far as I'm concerned, lacked argument. It's never lacked argument. Uh, what it has lacked is uh, effective social strategy, right? And there were some good podcasts on the Tom Woods Show about this too. Uh, I can't remember who the guest was, but they were really, really good. And um, so anyway, I'm not the first in the, or the last to, to talk about this. Yeah. Well, as always, Jamin, we appreciate your thoughts and analysis on how things are going on in the libertarian world and how to how to think better as libertarians. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks again, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Thank you.